Hosting for this podcast is made possible through mtgcast.com, which is supported by a generous contribution from quietspeculation.com, Magic's premier trading and financial news site. And welcome to Delving into Draft. This is episode 32, recorded on the 10th of July 2013. My name is Craig and I'm one of your hosts. Joining me this week is. Dan! Right, news! Um, in case you're not aware, M14 is about to come out, or potentially by the time you listen to this, it already is out. So, um, yeah, M14. Yeah, you said. Yeah, uh, also because uh, there's a new set coming out. The banned and restricted lists has been announced by Wizards, so every quarter they change what banned and restricted cards there are for the different formats. Absolutely no changes for this quarter. So everything that was banned is still banned. Everything that isn't banned still isn't banned. And um, that goes the same with Commander as well. The Commander Committee have also not changed any of the banned cards in Commander. So play on, basically. Let us delve straight into our first topic. Um, with the release of M14, uh, specifically from July the 13th onwards, there will be some reasonably large changes to the rules. Now, this was announced a little while ago by Matt Tabak, who is the rules manager uh, at Wizards, and um, he went over some of the changes which are coming. Um, we still, at the time of recording at least, don't have the comprehensive rules, so we don't know literally how everything is changing word for word, but we have a pretty good idea, so we can delve into it and explain what's happening. Yes. Right, so the first change um, is the legend rule is changing. So at present, or before uh, July the 13th to be more accurate, um, whenever you have a legendary permanent on the battlefield and a second legendary permanent happens to appear in the battlefield of the same name, they both destroy each other and both go to the graveyards as a state-based action. So I have Olivia, somebody else plays Olivia, or I try playing my second Olivia, and both of them decide to go to the graveyard because, you know, it breaks the space-time continuum because how can she be in two places at the same time? Yes. As of July the 13th, that's not quite so longer the case. Um, I will be able to control an Olivia, you will be able to control an Olivia, and they'll look at each other and just accept that somehow they can both be on each side of the battlefield without destroying one another. So we've kind of entered the realms of Street Fighter now, where you can have Ryu fighting Ryu. Or just one of those crazy episodes of Doctor Who where they happen to meet themselves, or somebody's cloned themselves, or something. Like the special one that's coming up, actually. Yes. (laughs) Um, Now, this also means that, whilst it doesn't make sense for two Olivia's to be on either side of the battlefield, because obviously there's just the one, it does make clones make a lot more sense. Clones were always meant to copy a creature, rather than just go... I'll kill the creature because of the legendary rules. So now clones actually do what they're meant to do. However, everybody else sort of just has a big problem because somehow they exist in two places at the same time. Who knows? Yeah, and this, this like makes some creatures way better now that they can't be killed by clones. Yeah. Because uh, that was the primar- primary way of killing things like Geist of St. Traft and stuff. Which is just not going to happen anymore. Now, there is a second change to the legend rule, insofar as I have, you know, Olivia and... Pl- I don't know why I'm using Olivia specifically, but I'll just keep going. I have Olivia, and I have a, another Olivia in hand, because I drafted really lucky. Now, my Olivia's been, I don't know, defanged, so, you know, she's pretty useless now. She can do some pinging and stealing, but I can't swing in with her. But I've got this Olivia in hand. Well, now I can play the second Olivia, and they both don't destroy one another. However, one of them will still have to go to the graveyard. You can still only have one legendary permanent of the same name 
on your side of the battlefield. So when I play my second Olivia, one of them has to go. And you then get the choice. So, you know, my first Olivia's defanged, I can play the second Olivia, get rid of my defanged Olivia, and I've still got a vampire raring to go to hit in, steal stuff, make things vampires. Yeah, however, somewhat contradictory to the way that clones now make sense and that they don't kill things on the other side of the battlefield, they do now kill things on your side of the battlefield. So you can play a clone to get rid of your defanged Olivia and have a new one. Yeah, it's from a flavour point of view, it's a bit hard to understand. However, I think one of the big things they've said is Phantasmal Image was never meant to be a blue Doomblade. No, I, I honestly don't believe there's an elegant solution to this anyway. No, I mean, either clones somehow copy a creature and in that way kills them, except for that's what Evil Twin's meant to do, not what clone and Phantasmal Image is meant <laughs> yeah. to do. Uh, on the other hand, then you just have, you know, Rurik Thar facing down Rurik Thar, and, you know, he's going to be really confused why there's two of him. And Yeah, I mean, you're going to annoy people one way or the other. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be annoyed because change is bad, according to most people, even though change is basically the only constant. And, uh yeah, this is just what's happening from now on, so... Yeah, I mean, I mean be- gameplay-wise, it does seem quite fun. I think it's quite good that everyone gets to play their cards and they actually do what they're supposed to do instead of just randomly disappearing off the battlefield because your opponent's playing the same card as you. Yeah, I think that's definitely the philosophy behind it, is that, you know, wizards want you to play cards, and they want your cards to stick around. This is why counter spells have been gradually getting weaker, and land destruction has been, you know, getting more expensive and rarer to find, because, you know, if all your spells are countered, you're not doing anything. If you don't have any land, you can't do anything. If all your creatures die, you know, what's the point in playing them? It's giving you more reason to play cards, and your cards should hopefully stick around a bit better, and you'll get the fun of playing a clone not as a kill spell. So. Yes. I mean, how often is that likely to happen in draft? Well, clones kicking about now, getting two of the same legendary in your, you know, in the same game, less likely, but it's going to happen. So, well, it depends on the format. I mean, if you look at uh, Dragon's Maze draft, the legends are actually quite common. I've seen double Tajik. I've seen Tajik killing a Tajik. So it does happen. Oh, fair enough. Especially when the rare is in a small set. Yeah, this is true. I mean, this is undoubtedly going to happen, you know, obviously more likely outside of Limited, but still Limited as well. Yeah. Right, similar to this, um, the Planeswalker Uniqueness rule has also changed. So this is slightly different from the Legend rule, because the Legend rule looks at the name of a card. If it's Legendary, and it has, you know, the same name as another Legendary with the same name, they kill each other. Planeswalker Uniqueness rule doesn't look at the name of the card, it looks at the type of the card. So, for example, Jace Architect of Thought is a Planeswalker Chase. Chase Memory Adept is also a Planeswalker Chase. Now, as of prior to July the 13th, you have Architect of Thought in play, and then you have Chase uh, Memory Adept in play. They both destroy each other as a state-based action. No longer the case. You can have a Chase, I can have a Chase, we can all be happy, we will have Chases. No more Chase Wars. No. <laughs> no more, no more, I play my Chase to kill your Chase doesn't work that way anymore. However, just like Legendaries... If you try to then play a second Jace when you've already got one, one of them's going to have to go to the graveyard. Now, that's less likely you're wanting to get rid of a Planeswalker than you are a creature, because Planeswalkers tend not to be defanged or pacified so much. However, you may be ultimate Planeswalker. It's got one measly counter on it. You can just play a new Planeswalker with more counters on it. Seems okay. Or also, you have the ability that I have a Planeswalker, I activate his ability, and then play the Planeswalker, getting rid of the first one, and I can then play the ability on the second one. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. You can activate a Planeswalker ability once per turn, 
those are two different cards to two different planeswalkers. That's all fine. Yeah, and this makes some cards a lot better. I mean, it's unlikely to come up again in draft because you <laughs> you're pretty lucky if you get two of the same planeswalker. But I mean, if you've got two Liliana the Veil, then they do get better because sometimes you just want to play one, make them sacrifice a creature, play another one, and then do the same again, and that clears their board or something. So it makes some planeswalkers a lot better. Double Jace Memory Adept will make people sad. As yeah, that's true, actually. <laughs> on one turn, yeah. And seeing nice. I milled you for 10 the, the turn before, that just ends the game. But again, unlikely, but will happen in Limited. Uh, I guess Sealed is a slightly more likely environment for it to happen in, but we will see. Yeah. I um, mean, the fact that these guys are first picked means that in draft you've got three chances to open one. In Sealed you do have six. Yeah. Now, um, there are some other changes which are, well, one is completely unlikely to ha- turn up in Limited. Cyborgs in Constructed Tournaments. I'm just going to briefly touch on this. Prior to July the 13th, if you want to go to a Constructed Tournament, you have to bring a deck of at least 60 cards and a cyborg of either 0 or 15 cards. And whenever you wish to sideboard, you have to sideboard in a one-for-one ratio. So if I come with a 60-card deck and a 15-card sideboard... In games 2 and 3, I better have a 60-card deck and a 15-card sideboard. I can obviously sideboard out cards, but it must be at a 1-for-1 ratio. Yes. As of July the 13th, you can now have, as before, at least a 60-card deck. So, I mean, there's nothing stopping you from playing Battle Witch now. There's nothing stopping you from playing Battle Witch come July the 13th. However, your sideboard can now be between 0 and 15 cards. So, you turn up to the tournament with with 13 cards, you're looking for the last two, and Maybe your friend forgets to bring them, or you can't find them at the vendors, and you're stuck with 13 cards, well, what do you do? Do you go down to zero? Do you put two random cards in? Well, now you don't have to panic. You can just run the 13 cards. That is your sideboard. This um, sideboarding rules have also suddenly changed. You no longer have to sideboard out one for one. However, your deck must be at least 60 cards, and your sideboard can be no more than 15 cards. So there's no... Taking my Battle of Witch, you know, 300 card deck, and then in game two, sideboarding down to a 60 card deck, and a 240 card sideboard. That's more <laughs> than 15, in case you can't count, you kinda do that, so. No, but there are some interesting things you can do in that you can have a deck bigger than 60 cards if you wanted to, and have spaces left in your sideboard to sideboard things out. I mean, the only time you'd maybe want to do that is if you had like a sort of toolbox type thing in your deck. Like, I don't know, a Green Sun Zenith plus a bunch of green creatures, and you ended up wanting to sideboard two of them out because they're not relevant in the matchup. But you wanted them in your main deck for game one just in case. So there, there's some cool things you can do with it, but they're, they're not going to obviously come up in, in Limited. No, uh, Limited it plays as before. You need to have at least 40 cards. You Your sideboards, everything else you picked up, whether in the draft or in sealed, and you can sideboard in and out as many as you want as long as you keep a 40-card or more deck. So... So you they've know, basically made it a lot more like Limited. Yeah, which, of course, is a good thing, because everything should be like Limited. Yay. <laughs> um, something else which is less likely to come up, uh, in fact, I don't think this is going to come up in M14 at all, um, playing additional lands. Now, this generally works like everybody thinks it works, but there's a few corner cases of the rules prior to July 13th, which required a subtle change for the rules going forward. So, uh, in the past, uh, you can have an Azusa Lost But Seeking in play that allows you to play two additional lands per turn, which obviously means I can play three lands. So, beginning of my turn, I go forest, 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 and then somehow I bounce Azusa back to my hand, play Azusa again. Well, she says I can play two additional lands, 
And now I can play two more lands, so I can play five forests in this turn. Which was a bit weird when you're kind of thinking, but I've sort of, I've played the additional lands, or haven't I played the additional lands? What's going on? What you were meant to do when you had a card like Azusa in play was go, this is my first Azusa forest, this is my second Azusa forest, this is my forest for the turn. And then when you bounced her, you were to go, well, this is a new Azusa, so here's my first new Azusa, and here's my second new Azusa forest. Which is a bit confusing and very seldom comes up, but it's more, it, it does come up in like Commander, I think, primarily. Um, so now what happens is when Azusa comes into play, she says you can play two additional lands. That sets your limit of lands to three. So I go forest, forest, forest. I've hit my three. Now if I return her to my hand, well, my limit's now down to one because nothing's saying I, I go up to three because Azusa's no longer there. I want to play Azusa again. The limit goes back up to three, but I've already played three lands. So there's no more shenanigans where I can somehow play five forests in a turn because Azusa only gives me sort of plus two land drops. And I'm at three, and I've played three lands, so no more's coming, and bouncing and doing flicker effects no longer allows me to play a lot of land on a turn, so... So, do you still have to say which land drops you're using? No. So, for example, I have Azusa in play, and I play a forest, and then I go to draw some more cards to find some more land. Well, if you kill my Azusa, then I'm down to a limit of I can play one land, because that's what the game rules allow me, and I play my forest, and now I'm a bit stuffed. There's no way of going, oh, my first land drop was a Zuza land drop. She just sort of raises the limit. Yeah. And if you kill her before you can play the future forest, then the limit goes down to one. You've played one. You're stuck. So you just just think of a, of a quote of how many you're allowed to play, which can go up and down. But there's no way of allowing the same card to give you more than what it says printed on it. You can't flicker for extra land plays. So. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, it's only really going to stop some really abusive decks, so I'm happy with that. <laughs> yeah, and it's not very intuitive because the, the other thing was, say I had Azusa and I played two forests, and then she did die. Well, do I still have one land drop because those are my two Azusa land drops, or do I have no land drops because the first one was my normal one and my second one was my Azusa one? If I didn't announce it, then there's no sort of default action, and that caused no manner of headaches, which is another good reason they've changed this because unnecessary headache. Yeah, less headaches. Um, there is one final change. Um, indestructible is now a keyword. So um, this seldom came up, but it could come up with Boros Charm. So um, there's a number of creatures which say, you know, this creature is indestructible. For example, um, Darksteel Colossus is indestructible. And it gives itself an ability which says, you know, you can't kill me with death touch, you can't kill me with damage, you can't kill me with destroy effects. Awesome. And if you did something like turn and burn on it, then it would make it, well, a zero one weird, and it would lose its ability, which made itself indestructible, and you could kill it. And that seems to make perfect sense, right? Because turn and burn on anything should kill it. Yeah. Well, if another card has given the creature indestructible, for example, Boros Charm, then, well, turn and burn doesn't work, because something else is making it indestructible. It's not giving it the ability indestructible, because indestructible was just a thing. It was just a statement, which the rules of the game sort of knew. So the rules of the game were sort of saying, that t- permanent is indestructible. A bit like the rules say, you can play a land every turn. And turn and burn wouldn't work on something which had been Boros Charmed. And a lot of people went, huh? Because it doesn't seem very intuitive. Well, that's all changed. Now, if you give something indestructible by some external ability like Boros Charm, and you then remove all abilities from it, then yes, indestructible is now a keyword, it is now an ability, it can be removed from it, and you can now destroy the thing with turn and burn like you always thought you could, but judges said you couldn't, so. Yes. 
it's it's not terribly intuitive. It's it's weird. It's I mean, this is only corner cases when other things give something indestructible, as opposed to something giving itself indestructible. But it's now a keyword, so it always works like you thought it did. And from now on, we're also going to be seeing cars simply printed with indestructible on them, as opposed to this card is indestructible. So it may come but well, I mean, there are indestructible cards in M14, so yeah, but there's nothing that loses makes things lose abilities, as far as I can tell. Uh, yeah, not that I can think of, but I guess this is definitely going to affect affect things maybe in Theros. It'll... And it'll still affect uh, Dragon's Maze Draft after the fourteenth. This this is true, yeah. So turn and burn will be better slightly. <laughs> yeah, turn and burn will be better uh, when you worry about Boros drama. I don't think there's anything else in that format which gives indestructibility or indestructible. Um, I think it's just Boros Charm, but now Boros Charm won't be quite as good as it was. Yeah, not yeah. quite. Almost, yeah. though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, still, it's still, still pretty good, but yeah. <laughs> not quite as good as it used to be, yeah. Um, so those are all the rules changes we're aware of. I mean, if there's any minor changes in the comprehensive rules, then, well, the comprehensive rules aren't out yet, so we can't let you know, but I'm sure we'll let you know next episode of this. Uh, one thing about the rules, whilst all these changes are changing in paper magic on July the 13th, Magic Online will not be affected until July the 24th. So just be wary for playing clones in your commander game, copying other people's commanders. They'll still destroy them until July the 24th. Is that the same date that the pre-releases begin? Um... I assume that's the reason for that date. <laughs> uh, Magic 2014 is on sale from the 29th. I genuinely don't have any idea. <laughs> no, I... Can't actually see the pre-release dates. The core set's on sale from the 29th of Magic Online. I presume sometime before. The, I'd assume the 24th, um, because that's when downtime is. Yeah, possibly. But I don't know for sure, and I can't seem to see it for some reason. So let's just say pre-releases from the 24th, and it's out proper from the 29th. That's probably why they have it at that date anyway. <laughs> One brief thing to mention now that we're talking about Magic Online. The week before, so from the 17th of July, the best day of the year, uh, until the 24th of July, Cube will come back to Magic Online, and also Rise of the Eldrazi Draft. Interesting. Um, so we will be able to Cube, which costs either 8 event tickets or 2 event tickets and 10 Cube tickets, for those who are aware. And you can win Rise of the Eldrazi Booster Packs, uh, there's also going to be draft queues, so it's just four three two twos, unfortunately. Which, yes, you're not meant to play four three two twos, but when it's the only thing you're allowed to play, well, then you are allowed to suck it up and bear it, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah so Rise of the Drazzy draft queues will be fourteen event tickets or two event tickets plus the product, which is obviously three Rise of the Drazzy booster packs. So yeah. Uh, that's first topic of the way, the rules changes. So let's move on to specific card rules for M14. Uh, we did cover quite a lot last week, admittedly. Um, but there's, the FAQ is now up. We actually have our hands on the FAQ, if not the comprehensive rules. So we can now talk about some of the funny things which may come up when we're playing with some of these cards in M14. Um, especially saying at pre-releases, a lot of people don't know how some things work, so it's probably good to give you as much forewarning and information beforehand, because uh, at least one of these cards is ridiculously complicated. 
Let us start with Ajani's Chosen. Um, this is a white creature. It's a two white and a white for a three three. It's a cat soldier, and it is a rare. Whenever an enchantment enters the battlefield under your control, put a two two white cat creature token onto the battlefield. If that enchantment is an aura, you may attach it to the token. Now, one key thing to recognize here, you cannot cast an aura if there's nothing for the aura to enchant. So you can't cast the aura as, say, it's entering the battlefield and then create the cat and then attach the aura to it. If you don't have a creature in play which you can target, then you can't cast the aura. Now, I'm not quite sure how that's likely to happen, seeing a Johnny's Chosen itself as a creature. Yeah. <laughs> it seems quite unlikely. It's possible. Well, it, they could... Uh, well, they, they could, could kill, kill it, it in, in response. response. Jinx. Uh, yeah, exactly. So and you'll still get the two-two cat, but the enchantment will go to the graveyard because it'll have no target. Will it not? Oh no, because it's it's entered the battlefield, so the enchantment won't enter in the first place, so you won't get anything. So they can kill it in re- if they kill it in response to you casting the enchantment, then you get nothing. Yeah, that, that's probably relevant. Yes. So just be aware of that. If the kill Johnny's chosen in a response, and that's the only creature you're trying to enchant. Well, it's the only creature there to be enchanted. Or actually, no, if it's a creature you're enchanting. Oh, whatever. If you kill the creature which you're trying to cast the enchantment onto, <laughs> you're going to get a cat, you're going to get an aura attached to anything, you've been blown out some. Yeah. Or dog. That is the risk of playing enchantments in the first place. This is true. Um, so just be aware of that. Angelic Accord. Um, this is... I think we spoke about this, didn't we? I think we did. Yeah. I thought it was quite quite cool. And, you know, it makes Angel's Mercy a card. <laughs> Which isn't in the set, I'm afraid to say. <sighs> That's just wrong. It's just to make it good and then not print it? <laughs> <laughs> just to go over this quickly again, Angelic Accord is a three white enchantment. Uh, at the beginning of each end step, if you gain four more life this turn, put a four-four white angel creature token with flying onto the battlefield. Now, this says when you've gained four more life, not if your life total has increased by four or more. So if, for example, you have a 4-4 life linker, and so, but somehow you still take six damage, you know, but you still block and you gain the four life, even though your life total has decreased by two, you did gain four life, so you will still get the angel. Yay. <laughs> Angels. It's a bit like a non-busted version of Luminarch Ascension, if anyone's ever played with that card. Uh, I am vaguely aware. That was Zendikar, wasn't it? Yeah, it was... You don't take damage for three turns, any three turns, um, and then you get to start making 4-4 angels for two mana each, which is quite sick. (laughs) Um, Oh, actually, there's a weird corner case for this. Two-headed giant should anybody be playing two-headed giant at the pre-releases. Life gained by your teammate does not count, because it wasn't you gaining life, even though your team gained life, and your team total is also your life total, you never technically gained life, so you will not get angels. No. <laughs> uh, really weird corner case, but yeah, if you're, al- if you're, if the other head gained life, they ain't you, no angels. Sorry, son. Or See, this is just wrong. <laughs> uh, why, why are there so many corner cases in Two-Headed Giant? It's such an awkward rules format. Yesterday I found the Two-Headed Giant FAQ. I really need to read that. I'm so happy I actually found an FAQ for it, because... Um, yeah, a lot of it is, you need to think hard, and it's good just to have an FAQ so I don't have to think quite so hard in future, so. I mean, one of the biggest changes, or one of the biggest impact rules in terms of Two-Headed Giant in any sort of recent format is the Orzhov Extorability. Because it hits both players, it's like so much stronger in Two-Headed Giant. 
uh, whereas Overload is a heck of a lot weaker because it actually knocks away all of your your allies' creatures as well. Exactly, yeah. Cyclonic rift. So, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. I imagine if any any store is running a two-headed giant event, they have a judge on hand who's actually competent and confident about running uh, two-headed giant events because they it do probably cause, helps. <laughs> yeah, they do cause extra headaches. Um, anyways, but that's what that's what we're here for. <laughs> that, that is what we're here for. We're here to help you with headaches, but if you intentionally cause them, then we may just walk away from the table, especially if we're talking about Commander. We yes. don't have to help you in Commanders. <laughs> uh, right, next card, Archangel of Thun. It's a three white-white, mythic angel. It's a three-four flying and lifelink, and it says whenever you gain life, you put a plus-one, plus-one counter on each creature you control. Now, this is whenever you gain life, so it's looking at each time you gain life, so it doesn't matter how much life you gain. So if you gain, you know, 20 life or you gain one life, that's both just a single life gain event. Uh, also, whenever a creature with lifelink deals combat damage, that's a single life gaining event. So even if you got like 50 lifelinking creatures all gaining life at the same time with a lifelink, that is just one event. You're only yeah. getting the one plus one plus one counter on each of your creatures. You're not getting 50. Oh, did I really say that? Um, yeah, so while editing the show, I realized what I just said there about, you know, all creatures attacking at the same time, they all have lifelink, it's one event. That's rubbish. For each creature with lifelink, it counts as you gaining life. So for Archangel of Thune, you'll get counters equal to the number of lifelinking creatures. So apologies for any confusion I've caused, and I apologize for saying anything along those lines in the future of the podcast, but... I figured whilst I was editing, I should probably put that in there, that I've been talking rubbish. Anyways, on with the show. Also, again, your teammate gaining life does not count as you gaining life. So, again, you don't get counters for your ally doing anything. Yeah, I mean, it's just just talking about the card, though, it seems like a pretty cool card. It does seem like a pretty cool card. The fact that it has lifelink so that it triggers itself just kind of makes it really nice. Yeah, indeed. Is Plummet in this? Are the easy ways to get rid of flyers with I Plummet? don't remember Plummet being in this. No. I mean, there's definitely there's definitely other ways to kill the creature, but... Yeah. Well, there's regular... Things that kill any creature would work on this as well. <laughs> True. Okay, let's have a quick look at Artificer's Hex as well. Mm-hmm. It's the, the way this works is it's a one black mana um, enchantment, and it's an aura which enchants equipment. Not something that happens a huge amount. Um, and the way it works is at the beginning of your upkeep, if the enchanted equipment is attached to a creature, destroy that creature. So the idea is you put it on your opponent's equipment, and then any creature that they have holding that equipment will die. Um, the only thing, really, that is likely to come up in, uh, in M14 is that you can't pay the equip cost of equipment to remove it from a creature. So you can't just go, right, I'll equip my equipment to a creature, attack you, and then unequip it by paying the equip cost again, unless you have something to equip it to. So you you can't just kind of dodge the ability by doing that. It's going again, it's man. Yeah, equip actually needs something to equip to. And even, say, in response, you kill the creature you're about to try to equip the equipment to, then the equipment just doesn't move. Yeah. <laughs> there's, no, there's no way you, it's not like you're throwing the shield or the sword across the battlefield to your friend and all of a sudden he gets doom bladed and, <laughs> you know, the sword clatters on the ground. No, the, the sword just comes back to you, the shield just comes back to you. It doesn't work like that, so. Yeah. But I mean, you, you can still put it on a, a useless creature after combat if you wanted to, to stop it from killing the creature that, you know, you want to protect. 
Yeah. Um, the other thing that this ability, this uh, thing probably has complicated wise rule, uh, rules wise is that if it's equipped to one creature and then after the ability triggers, it somehow gets moved to another creature. It's actually, it is the creature that it gets moved to, which is destroyed by the, by the trigger when it resolves. Not the creature it was on at, at the start. Is there anything that does that in M14? That's there isn't an M14, but it's quite a funny interaction. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird that you can kind of just go, no, you have this, and then it, it, the person that gets it dies. Yeah. So this only matters if you have some way of moving an equipment to something else at instant speed. Not that there are any in M14. Right. Um, the next card is enlarged. This is a three green green sorcery. And target creature gets plus seven, plus seven against trample until the end of turn. It must be blocked this turn if able. Now, the important thing about this card is uh, Michael Crowmark uh, drew a really pretty picture for it. A massive cat is attacking merfolks in a giant city underwater, and it looks amazing. Um, so that's the important thing about this card. It, it, that artwork's so cool. It's like a house cat trying to get goldfish or something. I know, but it's actually merfolks like running towards their city. And the best part is that it is a house cat. It's not like a tiger. It's an actual house cat. Nope. House cats are very dangerous when they become at least eight eights. Well, yeah. I mean, how big is that? <laughs> uh, bigger than Amanda Ta- uh, Tanneris. Tanneris? Yeah. Although, I don't think she's the best example of no. the toughness and the power representing the size of the person. <laughs> this is true. Uh, bigger than Grizzlebrand? Grizzlebrand's an eight eight, so. A cat Grizz- size of Grizzlebrand. No, Grizzlebrand's a 7-7. Seven, seven. Is he? Yes. Oh, wait, no, the 8's. He's all the 7's. Except for the mana cost, which yes. is 8. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, to be honest, there's nothing terribly complicated about Enlarge other than, oh my god, the artwork. The artwork. I had yeah. to point it out. I don't, yeah. uh, you get you can get the full screen artwork if you have Jewel of Planeswalkers 2014. It does one of the random backgrounds. Kitty Cat of Doom. Although, while we're talking about the card, as a little addition, I actually think that in most decks, this card is better than Overrun. And that's quite a big statement, considering how much of a powerhouse overrun can be in limited. Yeah. But having played Joes of the Planeswalkers with the green deck, and you kind of get, I think it's three copies of each of this and overrun you get, I was like, well, you can't have six copies. That's too many. So at first I took out two in large and one overrun, but I've just gradually switched, and I now have three in large and zero overrun. So I'm not sure if it's just in constructed, or if it's also going to be better in draft, but it just feels that way. Like the fact that they have to lose a creature is it's basically killing one of their creatures as well as still hitting them for a ton of damage. I can confirm that Overrun is not in the set. No. However, so, Plummet is, so you won't have to worry about whether you want the Enlarge or the Overrun. But No, but it's worth val- when you're valuing this card, it's worth looking at the fact that it is up there in that in power level in yeah. draft. I, I reckon it's going to be almost as good, if not as good, in draft. So... Keep an eye on this one, see how it works. Uh, right, Jace's Mindseeker. This is one of the creatures named after the Planeswalkers. It's a four blue blue fish illusion. It's a four four with flying, and whenever Mind... J- uh, let's try that again. When Jace's Mindseeker enters the battlefield, target opponent puts the top five cards of his or her library into his or her graveyard, and you may cast an instant of sorcery from amongst them without paying its mana cost. The important thing I just want to point out here is from amongst them means the five cards you just milled, not from the entire graveyard. So just because your opponent's cast a flashy spell doesn't mean you can use the Mind Seeker to somehow cast it. Darn it. Unless I also they have a second copy in the five cards you mill. So just just to be aware of that, I mean, it's something you're, you know, you're likely to accidentally skim read and not 
point out, so this is me pointing out for you. Although it is entirely possible. I did have a draft, not Friday just there, but the week before, where I had two backing calls in my deck. <laughs> oh, so yeah. It is entirely possible that they've cast the one big flashy spell, you do this, and they still have the same flashy spell in their deck for you to get. <laughs> just don't count on it happening. No. Talking about big flashy spells, Liturgy of Blood, it's a three black black sorcery, and it says destroy target creature, add black 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 to your mana pool. So, we've kind of still got murder, we have a destroy target creature in black, it does cost two more, but it gives you some black mana in return. Now, this is a sorcery speed, so you're only going to be casting it during your main phase, with very few exceptions. Note that any mana which is added to your mana pool disappears at the end of the step, so if you end your main phase, and you want to do something in your end step with your black mana you generated, well, the black mana's unfortunately gone. Yeah. So you need to make use of it sort of here and now. It's exactly the same as Burning Tree Emissary, in fact. Uh, if you cast it during your main uh, phase, then you need to use a mana there, or you lose it. It doesn't sort of hang around until end of turn or anything like that. It is really nice that when you get to your turn 5 drop, you can actually kill something and then play a 3-drop creature, though. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Or you could even chain it to a Doomblade if you're nasty. Well, yeah. <laughs> Kill all of the things. All of the things, yep. Although less likely since that Doomblade is now an uncommon. True, true. Oh, I noticed on... Um, I can't remember if it was Mark Rosewaters or Matt uh, Tayback's Tumblr, but somebody went, You've made Doomblade an uncommon. You've ruined the aesthetics. Because obviously before it was all black and white, including the fact it was common. Oh, and, yeah. And now true. it's got silver in it, so it's ruined the aesthetics. And I'm just like, really? Really? I don't know. That, that person really needs to get themselves some black-on-black planeswalkers. Oh. And then complain about the little flashes of colour that are on them. That's true. <laughs> oh. anyway, Tell um, you what, if they don't want them, they can send them this way. Absolutely. I will take any of those planeswalkers coming out of San Diego Comic-Con. I mean, if any of our, our generous listeners want to, you know, gift us anything... <laughs> then we will gift you free advertisement in return. We will love you forever. <laughs> yeah, I don't think this has happened. No, I, I don't think we're going to get lucky. Um, ah, well. Alright, let's carry on. Mutavolt. It's a land we spoke about it last time. So this is the land which either taps for colorless mana, or you can pay one colorless mana to turn it into a 2-2 creature with all creature types. Please note that if you play Mutavolt, and then you pay one mana to turn it into a creature, it still has summoning sickness. Just because it's a land when it comes into play doesn't mean it somehow avoids summoning sickness. You cannot attack with creatures or tap with creatures the first turn they come out unless they have haste. So yes. Mutavolt cannot come in as a 2-2 creature which just attacks, although you can certainly use it to block. This is not quite the same as Awaken the Ancient. Is that the red enchantment? Yes. Uh, which turns a mountain into a 7-7 red giant creature with haste. They've put the with haste on there, so yes, you can swing with it straight away. It's quite ironic in that it basically makes no difference to how you play, because you're you're going to be enchanting a land. You can enchant the extra land that you haven't played that you haven't played this turn anyway. So it just seems a little bit strange that they've put haste on Awakened Ancient as if to help new players by it working straight away, but then they've also put Mutavolt in the set. Uh, yeah, there's also the weird thing that... Okay, so the land you just played will have a summoning sickness if you turn into a creature. So you just use awake, you just play your mountain, use that mountain as part of the Awaken the Ancient's cost, and target the one untapped mountain you have. 
Yeah. And the fact that it has one colourless in its cost, I mean, if it had been four red, I can imagine a situation where you have four red, four mountains in play, and you want to play a different land and use it to enchant the new land. But the fact that it has one colourless in its cost means that even that won't come up. There's, I can't think of a single situation where you won't be able to enchant a land that didn't just come into play. So it, it's just really bizarre. It, it, I, I, yeah, it, it is a bit, but anyways, yes. Awaken the Ancient, um, you can attack with the land straight away, mutavolt, you cannot. Yes. Unless you've given all creatures haste somehow. I don't think uh, Fervor's in this. Uh, was Fervor double strike or haste? Anyways, I don't think there's anything there. Fervor was haste, but right. it's not in this set. Yeah. Thankfully, because it sucks. <laughs> uh, more enchantments, because enchantments are the new... Um, uh, something. Uh, two and a white for rare white enchantment. <laughs> um, as long as your life total is greater than or equal to your starting life total, creatures you control get plus one, plus one. Whenever one or more creatures you control attack, you gain life equal to the number of attacking creatures. Your starting life total is a life total you began the game with. So this is 20 in most cases. It's 30 if you're doing two out of giant. It's 40 of its commander, I suppose. So just be aware that you're like, this is not saying 20, it's saying whatever you started with. So it depends on the format of the game. Yeah. Which, for those other formats, is a nice change. Seeing as they usually just plop a number on there, and then you have to worry about how it plays differently in these other formats. <laughs> yeah, like uh, Sarah's Ascendant, which is just a f- one-drop 5-5 five, five flying light flinker, I think, in 2 out of Giant. 6-6, six, six, I think. Oh, either way, it's not. <laughs> yeah, that is a ridiculous uh, for one mana. Um, note again, uh, well, when you gain all the life because of the number of attacking creatures... It's a single life gain event uh, for purposes of other things. Uh, please note, though, in two out of giant, whilst it does require that one or more of your creatures attacks, it counts the number of attacking creatures in total. So you have to swing one of your creatures, but you can count all of your teammates' creatures in the amount of life you gain. So this is yeah. another, this is a weird interaction where if your if your ally attacks, you don't get anything. If you and your ally attacks, you get the whole benefit. Um, yeah. And also, the, they don't get the be- the bonus from the Path of Bravery. It's only your creatures that get plus one, plus one. Yes, because it's you control, not your team control. So it's kind of like, I'll accept your help, but you ain't getting nothing from me. <laughs> Seems a bit harsh. Well, I mean, in most cases where there are two-headed giants, the two heads do tend to squabble. Yeah, I've noticed this a few times. Yeah. I mean, almost every pop culture event. Uh, yeah. Rurik Thar seems to agree with one another, Rurik and Thar, but aside from that, I can't think of another example. No. Yeah. I ain't got anything. No. Uh, I've now got Shogal for World of Warcraft in my head, in fact. <laughs> well, one of them is just absolutely insane, and the other one is like, what What? What are you on? A- Calm down, what? No. You know. Is that Dire Maul? Uh, no, this is Twilight Citadel. Ah, I've not done much high level. Oh well. Right, there's a couple of spells which work rather similarly uh, together. They sort of change when you're allowed to cast spells, and these are Quicken and Savage Summoning, which are both uh, single mana spells and both are rare. So Quicken is a blue spell, single blue to cast. It's an instant, and it says, the next sorcery card you cast this turn can be cast as though it had flash, and then draw a card. Savage Summoning is a green instant, single green mana to cast. Savage Summoning cannot be countered. Also, the next creature card you cast can be cast as though it had flash. That spell also cannot be countered, and it enters the battlefield with additional plus one, plus one counter on it. So, 
One allows you to play sorceries at instant speed. The other one allows you to flash in creatures with plus one, plus one counter on it. So with Quicken, this means sorceries effectively become instants. So you can cast it during your opponent's turn. You can cast it during, well, outside of your main phases. So if you want to do a sorcery speed, enlarge is a sorcery, isn't it? So you could combat trick yeah. the enlarge on one of your creatures when it already hasn't been blocked. So you get in the full extra seven damage. Um, now note, it's the next card you cast this turn. So say I cast Quicken at, ooh, upkeep. And then I cast a sorcery during my main phase like I would any other sorcery. Then I have used up my flash ability. A bit yeah. foolishly. So there's really no reason for you not to go quicken, let it resolve, draw the card, then cast your sorcery. But if you somehow do it some distance apart, just be aware it's the next sorcery card. It's not like you choose which sorcery card this turn. That's flash. Yeah. Um, and they also draw the stack. So it's unlikely they come up much, but if you ever cast two quickens, just trying to get to a sorcery, or something. So say you cast a quicken, cast a quicken, and then you have a divination, and you cast that. Um, you then draw two cards, but both quicken effects have been used up on the divination because they both apply to the next sorcery. Yeah. They don't kind of store them up for for future cards. Yeah. So it's not likely to come up a lot, but when it does, that's how it works. If you got two quickens, then I feel bad for you. Um... Well, they're pretty uh, good, but they're not the greatest rares to open, so some of them They don't hurt, because you get... They, they at least psycho. This is true. Um, you haven't really lost anything, whereas Savage Summoning is a little bit less good, because it doesn't psycho. Yeah, I mean, however, if you do cast double Savage Summoning, then you will get that additional plus one, plus one counters equal to the number of Savage Summonings you cast. So if you cast Savage Summoning, Savage Summoning, and then your creature, it'll have plus one, plus one, and plus one, plus one counters. So a total of plus two, plus two. Yeah, you never know. Could be good. And again, uh, flash is the same for creatures as it is for spells. You can cast it whenever you like. So during your opponent's turn, outside of your main phases, whenever you like. Uh, just remember, if you do go into declare attackers, declare all of your attackers, then summon a creature with savage summoning, then you've missed the point where you can declare your attackers. So please remember to do it at the beginning of the combat step, not in declare attackers. Of course, it would have to have haste for you to be able to attack with it anyway. That's true. But yeah, that could happen. It could happen indeed. I mean, red-green do tend to go to work together quite well. Yeah. Right, uh, let's go back slightly to Ratchet Bomb. Uh, one of the marquee cards of the set, I guess. I mean, we all sort of remember it from Scars of Meriden block. Was it Scars of Meriden? Yeah, that was the one. Yeah, so uh, if you haven't been playing since uh, that time, it's a two-mana artifact. Uh, you can tap it to put a charge counter on Ratchet Bomb, and you can also tap it and sacrifice it to destroy each non-land permanent with a converted mana cost equal to the number of charge counters on Ratchet Bomb. So a couple of important things. One is it's converted mana cost equal to the number of charge counters. You can't put four charge counters on this, tap and sacrifice it, and destroy everything of four or less. It's very precise. So it's not like Gaze of Granite where you choose X, then it destroys everything that's less than X. Yeah. The other thing... um Tokens, and there's plenty of ways to get token creatures in this set, they have a converted mana cost of zero. So if you want to get rid of all the tokens, then you just go two mana for the Ratchet Bomb, tap and sack it straight away with no charge counters on it, kill all the tokens. Yep, as long as the token isn't a copy of another permanent. In that case, it's, it takes the mana cost of that permanent. That's true. But that's the only time that a token has a, mana, a converted mana cost. Yeah. Uh, also note that 
X on a permanent, for example, like a Hydra, X is zero when it's on the battlefield. The only time X is not zero is when it's on the stack. So yes. you have those big Hydras which cost X green and green. That's a converted mana cost of two, so it's quite easy to ratchet bomb them away. This is true. Admittedly, the most worrying part about ratchet bomb is when it's against a, cre- uh, a token deck, because you get to get rid of a lot of stuff quite easily. Yeah, it's really going to uh, destroy your spore mount uh Yeah. (laughs) So I mean you can't so just you can sacrifice it with zero counters on it. It doesn't have to have like some on it before you can do that. Yeah. Uh also there's no ways to take counters off of it, just as a warning if you try going too high for some reason. Yep. Yeah. Once you're past, that's it. Yep. Because it ratchets up. Anyway. Uh Sengir Vampire, it's a returning card. It's been in quite a lot of core sets and maybe a few other sets as well. Uh it's a four four vampire for three black and black. It has flying, and it says whenever a creature dealt damage by Sengir Vampire this turn dies, put a plus one plus one counter on Sengir Vampire. Please note it's when a creature is dealt damage, then there's a gap and then it dies. Like you don't have to kill it with Sengir Vampire necessarily. Yes. Um I'm not quite sure how well? I suppose if you make Sengir Vampire fight with a creature, it will deal damage to the creature. But if that doesn't kill it, and but it dies later, that will still give the plus one plus one counter to Sengir Vampire. Yeah, this so, is true. So the the dealing damage and killing it does not have to be at the same time. Or, or say you're attacking with Sengir Vampire, they block it with the Wall of Swords, which is a three five, I think. Um, it's not going to kill the Wall of Swords. It's still going to be around. If you can somehow then deal a damage to the Wall of Swords, that will die, and you'll get your counter. Yeah. Yeah, so that's how Sengir Vampire works. Um, Seraph of the Sword is a 3 and a white 3-3 angel with flying. Prevent all combat damage that we dealt to Seraph of the Sword. So it's a bit like the Fog Bank of this set. <laughs> but it's bigger, and it can attack, and it's way stronger. And, and it's, it's also rare, thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> but if you've played with Fog Bank, it's a bit like that. Yeah, so be aware, combat damage is only when you're doing damage in combat with creatures fighting one another. Yeah. Uh, this isn't prote- protecting it from shock, although you'll need two of them to kill it. Um, it's not preventing it from other things which do damage, like fight, which is not combat damage. It's only when, you know, you have the attacker and the blocker, and then they do all the damage. That is combat damage. Every other time is just general damage. So yes. just be aware of that. Um, although one thing to point out is that if something has trample... Um, it will trample over the top. Seraph will prevent only the three damage that you have to assign to it. You can assign your three damage to the Seraph and then assign the rest of your damage to the player or Planeswalker. Right, another white rare is Silence for a single white, and as an instant. Your opponents can't cast spells this turn. Now, this has some awkward timing restrictions insofar as, say your opponents already cast a spell and it's on the stack... This does not work as a cancel. They've yeah. already cast, this is not, your opponents can't resolve spells this turn, it's, your opponents can't cast spells this turn. So they've already cast a spell, and then you go, oh, silence in response. That spell is still gonna resolve. That would make silence a very strong card. Yeah. <laughs> One white mana, counter your spell. <laughs> yeah, that, that seems a bit OTT. Now, also note that while silence is on the stack, nothing stops your opponent from casting more spells. Yeah. So silence is not a counter spell. It stops them count- casting spells after silence resolves. So a little bit of tactical information. You kind of want to do this during their upkeep so they can't cast their sorceries and their creatures and their planeswalkers and their artifacts. 
but they can still cast their instants right there and then, and they're flash creatures. So, yeah. um, just be aware. If they have a counter spell, they can still just counter your silence. That is also true. <laughs> uh, it also doesn't stop them from activating abilities or activating abilities from cards in hand. Uh, for example, uh, Blood Rush. Not that Blood Rush is obviously in the set with it, but for example, yeah. abilities are not spells. They can still use abilities. So same with like Planeswalkers and stuff. Like, yes. You can still activate your Planeswalkers. Indeed. Um, so it's maybe not quite as good as you think it is, but trust me, it is still good. Yeah, it's okay. It depends on what you're against. It's it's usually better if you're going to do a lot in your next turn to actually overwhelm them. Or if you've you've kind of committed a lot to the board and then you do this at the start of their turn to stop them being able to do anything for a turn of buys you like a whole, te- a whole turn of being able to attack with those creatures. Yeah. So it's kind of... It is, it's, it's good in some situations, but it's, it's very mediocre in others, so probably want to think about it before putting it into your deck. Yeah. Just because it's a rare does not mean it's good. Yeah, do not fall for that trap. There's <laughs> quite a few rares in this set which are a bit mediocre. There's there's a, there's a rares in every set which are mediocre. Let's not kid ourselves. Yeah, this is true. Glaring Spotlight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it used to some good effect. And the fact that you can just give all your guys unblockable and smash in for a ton is, is probably good enough in some aggro decks. Okay, then. Search the city. Yeah, okay, there you go. <laughs> I'll give you that one. <laughs> awesome. Right. Uh, another rare, of course, all the rares have the awkward rules in them, but this one is potentially the most awkward in the set, I would say. Um, Stryonic Resonator? Is that how you pronounce it? Sounds about right. Stryonic Resonator? Uh, it sounds good. It's two mana for an artifact. As I said, it's rare. For two and tap, you may copy target triggered ability you control, and you may choose new targets for the copy. I feel just like reading out the FAQ bullet points in full because undoubtedly <laughs> people, what is a triggered ability? That's going to cause problems. How does it work with certain other spells and other formats? I feel like I should possibly just read off the FAQ. Yeah, pretty much. Go okay. for it. First thing, uh, there is some reminder text on this. Uh, a triggered ability uses the words when, whenever, or at. So for example, when Dr- uh, Grave Titan enters the battlefield, put two, two, two zombies into the play. That's a triggered ability. At the beginning of your upkeep, pay some mana cost for some effect. That's a triggered ability. Uh, whenever a creature dies, that's also a triggered ability. So that's sort of where you tend to see triggered abilities. Yeah. Um, now, this does require the triggered ability to have actually triggered and gone on the stack. I'm not quite sure why you try it beforehand, but you can't force a triggered ability to happen. Um, if the triggered ability is a modal ability, you know, you choose one or something along those lines, then the mode is copied. You cannot change the mode. It's like copying a spell, you know, like I cast Boros Charm to give all my permanents indestructible. If you copy that Boros Charm, it's going to make all your permanents indestructible. You can't use it to deal damage or anything like that. Yeah. Or another example, you've got Angelic Skirmisher, um, which was a creature that at the beginning of each combat step, you could choose to give your creatures lifelink, first strike, or vigilance. Um, you can't copy that to give them two different types. It would give them the same thing twice, which is going to be useless in all three of those situations. Yeah, you don't get first, first, strike, strike, or double life link, <laughs> or uh, double vigilance. Uh don't even know how that would work, that last one, but yeah. <laughs> it's so vigilant, it ends up tapping. Now, whilst you can choose new targets for the copy, if the triggered ability divides damage or distributes counters amongst a number of targets, then 
the divisions and the number of targets can't be changed. So, for example, I uh, I can split five damage amongst any number of things I choose. So I do three to one thing and two to another. If you use Strionic Resonator, then you still have to target two things. One of them is getting hit by three damage. One of them is getting hit by two damage. So you can change what you're hitting, but the division and the number must stay the same. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you can't like do five damage to one thing and then do one damage to five other things. It doesn't work that way. Uh, Stranic Resonator also works with abilities which you get a choice whether they do a thing or not. Um, Extort is the most recent example of this. So, you know, when you cast a spell, you may pay black or white to do one damage and gain that much life. You, whilst with Stranic Resonator, it'll copy the Extort trigger, but it doesn't copy whether you've paid for it. So you'll just get two options to do Extort. It's your choice where you pay for one of them, for both of them, for none of them. It's not the case that you pay for one and then you copy it and then you get the extra damage for free or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so if there's a choice to be made and it hasn't yet been made when it goes in the stack, then you have to still make the choice and pay any costs associated with that, etc. Wow, this card's painful. <laughs> yeah. This, I, I, I'm glad there's an FAQ here because even I'm not thinking of some of these possibilities. Um if the triggered ability is linked to a second ability, then the copies of that ability are also linked to the second ability. So, for example, uh, Night Vale Spectre, another recent card, it says, whenever, that's a clincher, uh, Night Vale Spectre deals combat damage to a player, that player exiles the top card of his or her library, and then you may play cards exiled with Night Vale Spectre. So when you copy the exiling of the top card, you allow them to exile two cards, and you may play both cards. Both of those cards are connected to Night Vale Spectre's abilities. Although I am not going into the explanation of how linked abilities work, because that is probably a whole topic by itself. Yeah, let's avoid that. <laughs> I mean, the, the only thing in this set that really has linked abilities is Elite Arcanist. It's not likely to come up. Basically, the way that it works, that everyone needs to know about, is that if you've got uh, say with Night Vale Spectre, you've got these cards exiled with it. If that Night Vale Spectre somehow leaves and then re-enters the battlefield, those cards are no longer linked with it. Yeah. That's um, probably the only time that linked abilities are really that relevant and limited. Uh, I may as well briefly cover the other part. If Night Vale Spectre somehow was able to exile cards through some other ability, it would not then be able to play those cards because it wasn't exiled using the Night Vale Spectre's ability on the card. Yeah. Yeah, let's not go into this. Let's leave it at that, I think. Yeah, that's probably good enough. <laughs> uh, and I think we can also leave Strionic Resonator that. I think that pretty much covers most. Yeah. Although... Well, okay, actually, the interaction with Elite Arcanist, let's mention that, because that is possible to happen. So, whenever Elite Arcanist, Arcanist, still decided how to pronounce that, enters a battlefield, you exile a card. If you copy with Strionic Resonator, you'll be exiling two cards. And when you pay to activate Elite Arcanist using its other ability... Um, the cost of X is the sum of both cards converted mana costs, and you get to copy either both cards or no card or one card. Yeah. <laughs> so it makes it really expensive, but it makes it way better if you can pay for it. Yeah, so I exile Doomblade and Shock, and then I need to pay three and tap to copy both of them, and I can do either one of them or none of them, or both of them in any order I like, uh, but then my, I'm, I'm, my brain hurts. It seems quite strong, though. It if does you seem can set strong. the situation up. Yeah, d- double removal of return for three mana. I'd have that. 
Although I'm not sure, I have to say, I'm not sure how strong Stryonic Resonator is likely to be in this limited format. I don't really see... I, I don't think it's going to make a big impact. I'm pretty sure this is... I kind of want to say it's for Commander, but I'm pretty it, sure it's it's a, it's power is going to reach far and wide across all of the formats of Magic. Well, it, it looks like it's going to be really fun in Commander. I think that's what it was designed with in mind, but... There's every chance this could become playable in standard if there's enough triggered abilities going around, which there usually is. Force Reckoner has a triggered ability, doesn't it? Uh, yes, because it's when it's dealt damage. So you can double the damage. That seems pretty good. I think. Yep. Can, I think Same with Angel of Serenity. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Exile six creatures. Also remember, O6 will return because it's a light yes, ability. Yeah. They will. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there's some place for it in modern, but I don't play modern, so I can't even begin to fathom. But th- this yeah, is... well, remember, Storm is a triggered ability. Oh God! <laughs> well, so this does work with Storm. Well, I'm gonna have to rebuild that as a deck, and it's gonna be Storm Tastic. <laughs> all the dragons, all the dragon storm, all the time. <laughs> okay, Let- let's move on from Strayonic Resonator. Yeah, yeah, definitely the most complicated, but. Um... It's a great fun card, though, and I, I want to get a few copies of it. But. Yeah. Uh, right, next card is not terribly complicated. It's Water Servant. Two blue and a blue for a 3-4 elemental. You may pay blue to give it plus one, minus one until end of turn, or you may pay blue to give it minus one, plus one until end of turn. Now, please note, you can activate the second ability, which pumps up its toughness at the cost of power as much as you like. Should the power go below zero, it's just treated as zero for pretty much most reasons. Like, it'll do zero damage, not negative three damage. Yeah. If you're you're increasing its power afterwards, it will take into account all the negative power that it has. Yeah, so if I activate it four times, making it a minus one eight, and then I cast enlarge, it will only be a six power creature, not a seven power creature. Yeah. Um, Because it does remember the sort of minus one, even though it can't do minus one damage. It will be a six fifteen, though. It will be a 615, and uh, that is one big kitty cat water serpent. Uh, please note, it doesn't work the other way around. You can't activate the boost power for toughness as many times as you like. Um, there's no point where damage is on the stack or anything like that. If you pump it and its toughness goes to zero or less, it dies as a state-based action instantly. You can't do anything about it, so... Unless you've pumped it by some other means, don't activate the first ability four times, you'll just kill it. Well, I mean, you could activate it more than four times, provided the previous copies of it are still in the stack. Yeah. But you wouldn't be getting anywhere. <laughs> no. That is <laughs> However, you, you could activate the first ability five times, and then respond by activating the second ability twice, and then it would still be alive. Well, then you can use Strionic Resonator to copy some of those abilities, and... <laughs> no, it doesn't work. Never mind. Yeah, let's not. <laughs> yeah, Strong Resonator doesn't work here because those aren't triggered abilities, those are activated. No, those, but, those are activated. Yeah. <laughs> let's not confuse people too much. No. Um, right. Wild Ricochet is two red and red for an instant. Uh, you may choose new targets for target, instant, or sorcery spell. Then you copy that spell and choose new targets for the copy. So, you're trying to kill me with Doomblade. I then turn the Doomblade around on you, and then I get my second Doomblade to kill one of your other creatures as well. Seems pretty good. Um, most of the things we said with Stronic Resonator sort of are true with Wild Ricochet. For example, if I've chosen a mode, not that there's any modes in M14, but if I have, then the mode is the same, even for the copy. Uh, the division of 
say I do three damage to one thing and two damage to another thing, that's the same for the copy as well, so I still need to target two things. Um, yeah, I think that's all really need to say. Actually yeah. covered it with most of this trionic resonator stuff, to be honest. Although you can copy things that doesn't that don't have targets as well. It seems to some people it might suggest that you have to have targets in the spell for it to be copyable. This this card just seems like a massive three, four, five for one. <laughs> Depending like, on what you get, yeah. Um, Doomblade, that's a what three for one because you're stopping there doing two. So mm-hmm. yeah, it seems like it's going to be a massive blow a lot in limited. Yeah. And uh, I didn't play with it the first time it was around. Has this been in a core set before? Um, I think it was on Zendikar, but I'm not 100% sure. Okay. It was definitely around at the time. I saw someone play it. <laughs> it seemed pretty good at the time. Yeah. Actually, there's one last thing I want to touch on. It's not a card. Um, it's about slivers. Uh, yeah. All slivers have what we call static abilities. They're things that are true whilst they're kicking around the battlefield. So I've got Predatory Sliver, all my slivers have plus one, plus one. When it leaves the battlefield, uh, for whatever reason, say for example it gets Doombladed in the middle of the combat, instantaneously all of my stuff will lose the plus one, plus one the second the Predatory Sliver goes away. There's no trigger that happens, there's no sort of delay where you can respond. The second Predatory Sliver disappears, they all lose their plus one, plus one. Same goes with any of the other abilities. So, uh, Gill Rider Sliver giving things flying. All the things will suddenly drop down to the ground. It can be blocked by creatures without flying or reach, for example. Um, if, actually, here's the tricky one. There's Bone Strive Sliver, which gives double strike, and I can't remember the red one, which gives first strike. Double strike and first strike have slightly complicated rules about them, but let's take, for example, um, Ah, right, Striking Sliver. Now, this is actually only going to work with Savage Summoning in a set, but say, for example, I moved into combat and I had something with Double Strike, and I had all of my Slivers, but let's say they didn't have Double Strike, so I've just I've just got a Double Strike creature, okay? Yes. And uh, in the first damage step, I'll be doing my damage with my Double Strike creature, okay? Yes. Now, let's say I flash in my Striking Sliver, and all of a sudden all my Slivers are First Strike. But wait, we've passed the point where Double Strike and First Strike do their damage, so what on earth happens when we come to combat damage? Well, the rules are very careful in this. It says, if a creature doesn't have Double Strike, or it hasn't already dealt damage, then it will deal damage now. So even though your creatures have First Strike, and they, but they didn't do the First Strike damage, they'll be able to do damage in the normal Strike damage step, effectively. Yeah. Um, now, this is, now that's that's really weird why you'd flash it in between the da- combat damage steps, but you can if you want. It's slightly more straightforward when you talk about Bone Scythe Sliver. So, Bone Scythe Sliver, everything has double strike. So, we go to the first strike combat step, and all of our Slivers do for first strike damage. Then, they kill Bone Scythe Sliver somehow, and all oh, your guys no longer have double strike, they're not going to do their normal damage because they've already dealt damage and they don't have double strike anymore. Yeah. So they don't still somehow sort of keep the double strike and do the normal strike damage. So just be aware of this. Like, bonus life sliver is more likely to happen, but I'm not quite sure why you're sort of killing it in first strike and not before, but just yeah. throwing it in there that first could strike happen. double strike timing is a little bit funny and well I mean it could happen if they have something with first strike that blocks it I suppose this is true that's probably the most likely thing yeah so 
If you dealt first strike damage and you no longer have double strike, you don't do normal strike damage. If you somehow gain first strike, which I don't think is ever going to happen, but it could, uh, you still get to do the normal damage even though you've passed the first strike step. So. so basically, you deal damage in the second combat damage step, or the normal combat damage step, sorry, if you have double strike or haven't dealt damage already. Yeah. That's pretty much the, the straightforward version of all of that. Yeah. I, I'm not always good at my explanations. But you, you, well, you gave some examples. Right. Okay. So that helps. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, I don't, I think those are actually the only two ways this could ever come up in M14. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we can worry about it coming up in later sets down the road. Um, I think that's all I want to talk about when it comes to the rules for M14 or the cards for M14, unless there's anything else. Uh, that's probably all the cards, yeah. Okay. Need touched on. Right. Um, well, let's do sort of what we do every single pre-release. Let's talk about how the pre-release is going to work. Because in the past we've had big grandiose pre-releases with events going on, with mazes to run, with guild oh, packs and everything. Well, we're back to Corset and everything is pretty straightforward. So... When you turn up to your pre-release, you'll be given six boosters, or your team will be given eight boosters, if you happen to play, be playing Two-Headed Giant. Uh, you'll get a promo card, that's Megantic Sliver. You cannot play your Megantic Sliver in your sealed pool. Which so. is a slight change if you've only played the Return to Ravnica and stuff once. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, you can play Maze's End, you can't play your Megantic Sliver. Obviously, yeah. if you open a Megantic Sliver, feel free, but don't play your promo card. Yeah. Um, you will also get an achievement sheet, which we haven't had since Gay Crash. Uh, so, there's five different categories of achievements, one named after each of the Planeswalker, based around a particular colour. Um, I'll get on to why that's important in a sec. And... Yeah, otherwise the pre-release runs as a normal pre-release. So there's no funny gimmick going on unless you count the uh, achievement cards. Um, there's no race to be won, nothing's being tracked, it doesn't matter what colours you play, you don't have to pre-register or anything. Yeah, It's just know. some straightforward games of magic. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, you will get these achievement sheets and uh, there will be different things on it. I don't actually have any examples in front of me to give, but I'll make up some. So for example, you mill your opponent, or you gain 20 life in one turn. For, that's just wild examples. Now, if you happen to fill all of, complete all of the achievements uh, for a particular planeswalker, so all the blue achievements, because you've been milling and bouncing and countering and doing general JC stuff, then you can go to your local store owner and go, look at me, I've done all of JC's achievement, and you'll be given a planeswalker points achievement code. So, uh, specifically, this would say, you've earned Jace's Disciple. And I'll have a little code on it, and you can go into planeswalkerpoints.com and redeem the code, and you will gain an achievement. So then everyone who looks you up on planeswalkerpoints.com will see that you've gained Jace's Disciple. And they'll be very impressed. And they'll be very impressed. Um, now, there, as I say, there's one for each of the planeswalkers. So there's Jani, Jace, Liliana, Chandra, and Garrick. You do not have to complete all the achievements during the pre-release. Um, it's actually intended that you hold on to it uh, to bring it back for League, if your store does League. Um, your store may also, for example, keep tracking it during Friday Night Magics. Uh, you should probably ask your local store owner. Like, obviously, if you do it in the pre-release, go ahead and claim your card. Um, but they should be doing it for League, and to be honest, they probably won't mind and do it for 
later events. So whenever you happen to finish it, you can show your local store owner, and I'm sure they'll be glad to give you the achievement card. Yeah, don't see why not. Yeah. Um, I mean, for example, our local store got 180 of each achievement. I don't think there's 108 people that play Magic in anywhere near us, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we can take our entire region and just say there ain't 180 Magic players, which would... That's probably true. Which would shoot out there, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, the chances are your store is probably flooded with them, and if you actually ask them nicely, they'll probably give them to you for free because they're not worth anything to them, to be honest. No. <laughs> um, it's not but like they can try... cheating. S- you have to earn them. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, because nothing stops me from marking down ticks on all the achievements and going, yeah, I did it. You approved. Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm a judge, you know. I don't lie. Um, yeah. The, the system is not open to abuse whatsoever. No. Um, Much like the, the promotional codes for Joseph the Planeswalkers. No abuse whatsoever. I have never heard of a single person using the same code in multiple stores. Oh, for redeem. Oh, sorry, for redeeming your uh, your promotional cards. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that never happened. I don't have five of each of the ones from the last. Uh... Also, there was a bit of a bug in that if you got the Android version, it lets you install it on multiple devices, but each device you install it on gives you a new code. Yeah, they thought that one through. Yeah, good programming from somebody there. <laughs> oh, well. So I I know someone who has four or five of the Android code. They've only redeemed two at two different stores, but still. <laughs> okay. It, it's a bit interesting how that ended up working out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think there's anything else I do want to mention. No, have fun at the pre-release, pretty much. Yeah, enjoy yourself. Um, there. And feel free to comment on the Facebook or something if you've got any really cool stories from the pre-release. Yeah, or you find any cool card interactions which uh, we haven't spotted. Although Stranach Resonator with everything. Yeah, <laughs> anything with a triggered ability plus Stranach Resonator. Yeah, it's going to be fun times for all. Um, if anyone manages to make a deck that can really use it, I really want to hear about that. Yeah. Right, uh, main topic number three done. So... Um, I guess we're going to mention this competition thing we've been having. I, guess. I, I don't think we've ever done a competition. Did we never? Competition. No, we didn't do a competition. No, you, you, you said something about giving me a, a sealed pack on Magic Online. I don't remember anything about a competition, though. Did, did, did you enter the competition? No, I, I decided it wasn't. Then I, I'm pretty sure you, you, you haven't won then. <sighs> oh, well. <laughs> Right, um, I could tell you the winner. The winner is written down right in front of me, but um, let's not do that for now. Let's talk about the five different questions, because um, people have entered, and people have given me answers, and obviously only the correct answers went into the prize draw. And uh, some people got things wrong, and I'm not surprised because some of the questions were a little bit um, unfair. Especially so, the last one. The last one was impossible. The last one was very hard. Um, however, let's start with the first one. Now, I haven't went back and listened for it word for word, but I'm pretty sure I remember most of the questions. And the first question I asked was, what is the most Scottish card of magic as far as Quake is concerned? Yeah. Now, there were some interesting answers. I'm not going to mention the wrong answers. I wouldn't want to embarrass anyone. But Angus McKenzie was the correct answer. Yay. I'm happy that that was the correct answer, because I'd have been very disappointed if that wasn't your choice for the most Scottish magic card. Now, Angus McKenzie... Isn't wearing a kilt, 
He doesn't necessarily look particularly Scottish, but Angus McKenzie. <laughs> yeah, the name kind of sounds very Scottish. The name alone. Now, now, if somebody wants to go find me someone with a kilt and magic, which I haven't spotted, then you can, but his name is still Angus McKenzie. It's Scottish. <laughs> it's Scottish through and through, okay? So I'm afraid Angus McKenzie was my choice. Yes. The second question... Now, this one, this one was the one you were a bit sneaky on, wasn't it? I was a little bit. Now, I think... Well, to be honest, this was the one most people got wrong, and I think it's because most people misheard me. Although I did go back once I started getting these answers and double-check that I'd said what I thought I said, and I had. So I asked about um, charge counters on equipment. I said there were four equipment which had charge counter written on them, and I asked which one was illustrated by Validoff. Now, a lot of people thought I said artifact, I think, because a lot of people... And this is the one exception when I'm going to mention wrong answer. A lot of people answered Titanforge, which is an artifact illustrated by Velenov and has charge counter written in clear view on it. Unfortunately, I did actually say equipment. And the correct answer, which was sneaky, is Umazawa's GT, because there was a GP version of the card released, which Velenov illustrated. The normal version of GT was not by Velenov, but the GP version was. So... Unfortunately, it seems like a lot of people misheard me or um, weren't paying enough attention, but it was Umazawa's GT, not Titanforge. Or people maybe assumed that you'd made a mistake by saying equipment, seeing as they couldn't find any normal artworks by Svetlana Velenov on any equipment with charge counters. Well, there's, there's possibly also that. I mean, I, I couldn't make it too easy, could I? No, that was definitely the, the, the second hardest question of the lot after question five. Question three... Um, I figured this one was reasonably straightforward. I don't think anyone got this wrong. Modern Masters had come out, but it was all cards from 8th edition until Shards of Alara, um, which all those cards are not in Extended. Not that anyone plays Extended anymore, but none of those cards were from Last Four Years of Magic, with the exception of one. And the one card was Terramorphic Expanse, which was possibly one of the least exciting cards in Modern Masters, but it had been printed more recently than Charge of Lara. It was an extended, it was the one exception, and that was the correct answer for question three. Ooh, I got that one. Hey. <laughs> um, question four, I seem to remember I asked about a card which could grant all creatures death touch, lifelink, and indestructible. Okay, well, uh, I'm ready, and uh, I'm willing to hear the, the answer to that question. Uh, so, it was a bit of a trick, because it wasn't a spell, it was a card, it was, uh, obviously, ready and willing, as you just <laughs> subtly gave away. So, re- ready and willing, neither ready nor willing gives all of those, but if you cast it fused, then you get all of those abilities. So, um, I believe that was actually suggested to me by someone, and I may have stolen it, so they may have got a free entry into the prize pool, but uh, I feel that was okay. That seems fair. Oh, maybe, maybe, eh, it was a good question. I, I could not use it. And uh, question five. So this was the exceptionally hard question. It's a toughie. Yeah. Um, so the answer was uh, Ral Zarek. And I'm not going to give you the question because no. I think everybody can work it out from the answer what the question was. We basically gave you like some really obscure little hints about the card and asked you to guess what card it was. I don't know how anyone got it. Now, interestingly enough, somebody did give a wrong answer. He knows who he is. I am. I. I. I have already given him disapproving looks. But somehow somebody did say. Oh, I'm not going to say. Somebody didn't get the answer of Ralzarek. Yeah. 
I'm judging him right now. <laughs> that seems fair. Right, so anyways, um, people did get the right answers, and if you did give the right answer, uh, including Ral Zarek and not the other Planeswalker mentioned, if you did get the right answers, then you got into a prize pool, which I did just before we began recording the show, and I am proud to announce that the winner is Roger Ivany. So congratulations, Roger. Um, I will get in contact with you. Uh, I will find you, and whenever we're on Magic Online together, I will give you your competition prizes. So congratulations for winning the first Diving Into Draft competition. Yay! <laughs> right. Um, I think we are done then. Yeah. Awesome. In which case, uh, as always, we are on Tumblr at delvingintodraft.tumblr.com. We are also on Facebook as Delving Into Draft. Our email address is delvingintodraft at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter as Ravik underscore. Steve is Toe Jam Horse. Dan is Dark and the Mad. Your host for this week were me, Craig, and you, Dan. Yeah, that's me. The intro and outro music is by Kevin McLeod. The name of the song is a cannery, and it is a Roger Free Music license on the Creative Commons by Tributation 3.0. Every time. Every time. I mean, every time I'm going to say it. Not. I'm. I'm not surprised that you're saying it every time now because it does sound better. But I'm still going to say it (laughs) for for consistency. (laughs) Yes. I wouldn't want to let you down if you're expecting it and I didn't do it. Like that might just throw your whole day off. This is true. This is true. (laughs) You know what I really want to add to the show? What? I really want to add into a, a sort of um, what we've been doing with our week, like a brief sort of just what we've been up to. Maybe we had which... that in one of the uh, test shows that we done. Did we? It's like things you've done in the last week, like your magic week or whatever. I just want to do sort of things I've done in the last week because a few magic related stuff and maybe just some general, more general geeky stuff, which I wouldn't mind mentioning from time to time. Yeah. Okay, that works. Um. I, I've got I've got a few things I want to say. There's a few things I want to mention. Like, um, so one of the oddest things I did today, I volunteered to edit another podcast. Wow, that's brave of you. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I I don't want to say which podcast, but it, I do not know personally the host, but I'm okay. editing the podcast for them. So how did how did they get in touch with you? Over like, Twitter. They they sort of went, I'm looking for someone to edit the next episode of podcast name here. And I was just like, yeah, sure. Because I li- this is a podcast I listen to, uh, which I enjoy. And I was just like, yeah, I'll do that. Why not? Yeah. See, see, you saying that it's a podcast you listen to and enjoy doesn't really narrow it down because you probably listen to around 20 different podcasts. I listen to a few. Um, the ones I listen to the most are... Judgecast, Judgecast North, Horde of Notions, Deck Tease, Card Advantage. I think those are the main five. Uh, Drive to Work, obviously. <laughs> um, which I listen on my drive to work, obviously. Uh, 
Yeah, so it, it may be one of those six, uh, although you can probably rule out Mark Rosewater's. Uh, it may not. I, I can't possibly imagine. The other odd thing which happened this week, um, so my wife was away in Prague for another card gaming event, which is certainly not as cool as Magic. Anyway, she came back, and uh, one of the other judges who judges this other event, card gaming event, uh, happens to be a level three Magic judge, I want to say. And he turned to her and just went, you should become a Magic judge. So... Um, my wife is now becoming a magic judge, and he also went, you should get your husband to be your mentor. Okay. So um, I'm now mentoring my wife into becoming an L1. Nice. Um, which is I can't see that going wrong in any way. Which which is uh, leading to um, interesting conversations now, because all of it's just about her going, teach me the rules. And I'm just like, how? I, I'm not quite sure it works that way. She's just like, ask me questions. Like, uh... Uh, okay. Teach me. Ask me. Teach me. Ask me. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, like, sending her random messages at work. It's just... Actually, here's one. Because I'm having to write them properly as well. So Abby controls Shakishima's student, which is a copy of Woodfall Primus. Abby moves into the clear attacker step and attacks with Shakishima's student. Abby then casts Triumph Blast, and in response, Noland casts Twisted Image targeting Shakishima's student. Twisted image resolves, Nolan draws a card, and then Trumpet Blast resolves. What is Shakasima's student currently read? <laughs> okay. Now, I'm not a question I expect anyone to be able to answer off the top of their head, um, but, you know, I have to, like, go, right, so I need to ask something which is handling some complicated part of the rules, and I can't be too intuitive, uh, but I still need to keep it simple and not just, like, go into all the legacy cards and just go, how does, you know... Humility yeah. and opalescence work or something like that. So it's just like, yeah. Um, so there's been a lot of that, or just trying to work out weird corner cases, because I'm not used to coming up with these questions. It's people who ask me questions. Yeah. I'm not the one who tends to come up. So, yeah, this this is an interesting process. Well, good luck with that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> Although, admittedly, if someone's already a judge for a different card game, then they'll kind of have a rough idea. Yeah, it's also teaching her the correct terminology for things. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that this other card game um, does have some similarities in the way that the rules work. So this, that that will help. This is true. I mean, a lot of the time when we're playing, um, it'll be like, yeah, that that's this ability in this in Magic, which is this, ga- this ability in your game. That's how it works. Yeah. Basically the same. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, trying try to come up with complicated enough questions because, like, the easy ones are stuff like, um, name me the the uh, phases and steps. Yeah, um, that that question that you're talking there probably a little bit more complicated than level one. Yeah, well, it's to do with layers. Which yeah, that's it, level two. <laughs> well, it it is and it isn't. Layers isn't level one at all. It's sort of meant to be, I think. Not now. Hmm. Maybe under the old system because level one is where expected a lot more. Now level ones don't generally have to deal with that stuff. Which is kind of going to make it a lot easier for people to actually get into judging in the first place. And then they can worry about it once they try and progress. Yeah. I think it's better. Yeah. It's, so. not, it's not hard to become a The funny thing about becoming a level one, it's a lot harder to become a rules advisor. It is, actually. <laughs> um, Having done both with, within a reasonably recent sort of window, I can say the the rules advisor is definitely harder. Yeah, because you need to know stuff which level 1s don't need to know. It's really yeah, odd. It's kind of like the rules advisor test is based on the old system. Like, the rules advisor test was supposed to be 
a stepping stone just before what level ones used to be expected to know. Uh-huh. But now that level ones have been sort of brought down a bit to more of a uh, local level judge, um, it's kind of resulted in the rules advisor test having not been changed and therefore being like way harder than it needs to be. Right. But I think it's maybe just because it's 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 kind of a different thing altogether. Like a rules advisor is not a level zero judge. It's not something that's before a level one judge. It's a different path. Yeah. It, it, like, admittedly, it helps to be a rules advisor if you're planning on going down the judge route. But like a judge is there to sort of run tournaments and stuff. Well, not run tournaments, but um, assist with tournaments whereas, and events. Whereas a rules advisor is supposed to be someone who knows the rules mm-hmm. really well. So it is different. Yeah, there's there's no requirement to be a rules advisor kind of level one. Yeah. Uh, just being a rules advisor doesn't mean you're you're wanting to become like a judge. Yeah, so you could easily have a level one who couldn't pass the rules advisor test, <laughs> which is ironic. Yeah, but then you can also have a head judge at a tournament who isn't even a, a judge. judge, like a yeah, like a registered judge. Yeah, yeah, the tournament organizer can be the head judge for a tournament. Yeah, so it just shows that sometimes the, the judge levels aren't about how well you know the rules; it's about how well you can coordinate a tournament. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it is interesting that there's a difference. Yeah. Oh, actually. Hmm. So have you done anything else amazing this week? <laughs> uh, I'm now a judge. Oh, you're you're finally a judge. Right. Take you long enough. Yeah. So I feel like I should explain the story. So we both passed on the same day in London. We both yep. did the same test. We both became level ones because we both passed our test. Yep. Um, and of course, once, you know, they print it on a paper because you've got to write it all down and then they, they put it into their computers and then the computers go, you're now a level one judge. Congratulations. Yay. And they did that for you and they forgot to do that for me. <laughs> so the paperwork got lost effectively for me. Um, and, you know, it was, it was like the beginning of March and they had the, you know, the, there's a, there's a place where they announce all the new judges. And of course, I wasn't there, but you were. And I'm like, okay, that seems a bit odd. So I message wizards and go, yeah, so I, I passed the test, but, um, it doesn't seem to have been entered into the system. And, uh, little time passes and they get back to me and say, yeah, well, um, seems weird. Uh, we're going to look into it and work out what's going on. And then a little more time passes and they go, right. So, you appear to be into our system twice. Um, if you merge your accounts, then everything will get sorted out and you'll be a level one. So you merge your accounts and that'll be fine. So merge the account, uh, which still actually hasn't worked yet. Uh, there are still two of me if you look at the system, but let's not get to that. Um, but anyways, I did that and then I got a message back saying, okay, now that you're merged, you are a level one. Uh, even though it isn't appearing on the judge center, don't worry, it will just appear the next time you sort of refresh our database. Um, so I thought, okay, fair enough. So, you know, signed up for WMCQs and PDQs to judge and went, I'm a level one because wizards had told me I'm a level one. No reason to doubt the people in charge, right? Um, couple of months pass. So it's into what may, and I'm still looking at the judge center going, I, I appear to still be just a rules advisor. Um, where's my level one judge test? So I messaged them again going, hi, I, I did what you said, merge my account. Um, message you, you told me I was a level one and I had to wait for the next database to refresh. But it's been two months and, um, well, I work with computers and it doesn't take two months to refresh a database. So what's going on? And a week passes and I get a message back going, yeah, you know when we told you you were level one? No. <laughs> no, we never entered that into the system. Um, we, we haven't got the paperwork. Uh, we have no evidence that you've ever sat the test. Um, as far as we're concerned, you never did it. Um, 
Roughly. So, yeah, so at this point, a message, um, our regional coordinator, uh, Kim, uh, going, so Kim, uh, yeah, I passed my test in London, and um, you saw me pass my test, and we shook hands and stuff, but wizards don't, don't see that happening. Is there anything you can do, anything you can help with? And um, she told me what my exam number was and who it was who did sat my exam and uh, judged my exam for me and everything. So I sent it off to Wizards and waited about three weeks and finally I got this weird review in the judge centre by um, a head judge I dealt with like three months before who suddenly went, yeah, so I just met with Craig yesterday and he's a really hard-working level one, uh, really knowledgeable, and this should hopefully pass all the requirements he needs to become a level one. And then two <laughs> days after that, it popped up. I now am a DCI level one, but on the judge centre, even now, I still have never passed the level one judge test. Such a scrub. So, um, I am a level one judge who has never sat or passed the level one judge test, apparently, according to Wizards. Such a, such a cheat. But finally, the announcement came up a few days ago. My name is there. I passed, um, I passed in Cambridge with a judge who I've only met once, who lives in Cambridge, whenever I've never been to Cambridge. And, uh, yeah, but I'm now a level one judge, so woohoo! Finally! <laughs> About um, time. Yeah, so, yeah. And and that's been my week. Those have been the three crazy things I've been doing this week. Offering to edit another person's show, even though I hate doing it for ourselves because it's it's so much time and effort. Now I'm mentoring my own wife um, in the ways of judging, and uh, I'm now a judge myself, finally. But I uh, must be one of the most experienced level zeros before I pass my level one test. I mean, I did like four competitive REL events, and yeah, I was helping out on the public events at a GP. That's quite a bit. <laughs> that, that seems quite excessive for someone who hasn't passed the test. You've had such a more, much more eventful week than I have. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I can think of this week that I've done in terms of like non-work, really, is the draft on Tuesday, where once again I somehow managed to get two copies of the same rare split card in Dragon's Ma- in full block draft. Right. It wasn't Beck and Call this time. Can you guess which one it was? Well, there are only four left, and I'm going to guess it's not the rubbish. I'm just going to guess Flesh and Blood. No. <laughs> oh, okay. It was Ready and Willing. Okay. Which is quite funny since we talked about that earlier. Yeah. Um, however, I ended up playing none of them in my deck. <laughs> what? Oh, it's a well, good enough card. Yeah, well, it was, and I was playing four colours, as I usually do, four or five. Um, so I was every colour apart from red, and I'd picked up two ready and willings that I was playing, and one crisis at incubation, which I was playing. Okay. Um, I picked up one or two other, like, mediocre green cards that I was maybe, maybe not playing. Um, however, I then get to pack three, and I open a Mercurial Chemister. Right. And the last time I played four colours, um, the same time I had two copies of Beck and Call, um, I wasn't playing red. And in pack three, I got past something like a fourth or fifth pick Mercurial Chemister, and I passed it on. But this time I was like, right, I'm making the other decision. I'm seeing how that timeline plays out. <laughs> so I pick up the Mercurial Chemister, I get rid of my green because I really don't have quite enough fixing to support five colours, and I move all in on, on having these four colours instead. Okay. Um, I do have one other red card that I'm happy to play from before, Blast the Genius, and I'm not sure if I picked up anything else that I ended up playing. I think I had a thought flare, but it was mostly sideboarded. Right. 
Um, and then I played Four Colors and didn't play the Freddy and Willy. But Mercurial Chemistry did pay off in the long run. It won me, I think, three individual games. Well, that is the power of Is It Majors. Don't underestimate yep. them. Is it is it OP? It <laughs> or is. isn't it? It, it is. <laughs> um, and I managed to win myself a Voice of Resurgence. Ooh. That was the, the the first pick in the rares. Very nice. Which I immediately traded off because I already have a playset now. Because I specifically tried to get a playset. Oh, look at you. I don't need these voices <laughs> of resurgence. I'm too good for them. I, I traded off for two Jasons, which is a lot less than it's worth. But I was trading off to the guy in second who actually could have beat me in two ways in the third game of uh, round three. Um, he forgot to... He forgot a trigger to put a plus one plus one counter on one of his creatures. Um, in, in fact, that was in game two, which he still won. However, in game three, he didn't attack for one turn with his, oh, what's it called? The one in a white three one that gets flying. Uh, the Daring Skyjack. Yeah. He didn't attack with his scare, Daring Skyjack, missing out on three damage when I had no block flying blockers. Um, he only attacked with two guys. Oh, right. Okay. So it would have been completely free to attack with a steering skyjack and, and deal three damage. Yeah. Um, then, on the final turn, when I was about to mail him out, because I was kind of playing a bit of a mail deck, uh, he didn't realise that he had a scavenge creature in his graveyard. Again, he had enough damage in the air to put me to one that I couldn't block. Right. And he didn't scavenge. Right. So there was two ways he could have won, and I knew that he really wanted the voice, so I'd, I'd done a bit of a, a, a less value trade. And oh. got two cards I was still happy with. That's pretty good. For one card I essentially couldn't play because I had a playset. So, kind of good guy, kind of just, you know, <laughs> didn't need it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Nice for some, nice for some. <laughs> hey, we prioritise different cards. This is true. I don't think you would ever put much effort into getting a playset of voice resurgence. I wouldn't complain, but I'd much rather have a playset of shock lands or... Whereas I traded a bunch of shock lands for a couple of those and traded a couple of Rao's and stuff, so... (laughs) Fair enough. It it did cost me. (laughs) Anyway, 